Welcome to another episode of Dr. Doctor, the radio show featuring your physician hosts, Dr. Tom McGovern and Dr. Andrew Mullally, where we and our guests discuss relevant health-related topics from an authentically Catholic perspective. Dr. Doctor is the official radio program of the Catholic Medical Association, whose members, like Andrew and me, are dedicated to upholding the principles of the Catholic faith in the science and practice of medicine. Today, our special guest will be Dr. Saad Jazrawi. He's a gastroenterologist from Portland, Oregon, who's going to address that trendy elementary habit known as the gluten-free diet. But before we get to that, we're going to talk about some recent medical news, courtesy of Andrew. I've got a couple of interesting articles here today, and the first one is from a February 2018 article in the Journal of Neuroscience, Volume 12. And basically, the the summary of this article had to do with music education and executive functioning. Executive function? You mean like CEOs and company presidents? Pretty much, except (laughs) individualized for you. And so a, a brief definition of executive functioning would be to say, you know, processes that all have to do with managing oneself and one's resources in order to achieve a goal. So your, your brain's own CEO. Yes, it's, a, it's an umbrella term for the neurologically based skills involving mental control and self-regulation. And basically what this study showed, and I, I found it very interesting because so many parents try and get their children involved in music, this showed that one to two hours of music instruction in childhood resulted in significantly improved measures of executive functioning, and this was theorized to cause long-term influence and success even into adulthood. Great. So basically, if you get your kids into music and, and you can win the battle of the wills, if the kids resist, if you can persist and keep them in music training, they're going to do better even throughout their life with planning, inhibition, working memory. It, it helps teach their brain to learn how to work hard to achieve a goal. Is the longer they take lessons better? You know, I did not see that addressed directly in this article, but there was a clear association. And they, they did look a little bit about the arts as well, visual arts, mm-hmm. art in general. And that did not necessarily help with executive functioning, but it did help in other areas, especially in visual visual areas, which I guess could be interpreted from being art rather than music. So the extracurricular activities that you get your kids in, they're not, they're not useless, and they, they may carry their kid, your kids through life with different levels of abilities. I remember my uh, piano teacher said that the uh, great cellist Pablo Casals would start every morning to clear his mind by playing two Bach inventions on the piano. And Bach inventions are very mechanical, methodical pieces. And having played them, they really do clear your mind. So I believe, you know, just from experience, that there is some truth to that. See, that's awesome. I wish that I had more skill in the music realm. My parents did a great job starting, but I I won that battle of the wills. And so (laughs) the thing that I've learned is I am going to be a little bit stronger uh, in, in helping my kids because long term, you know, you want what's best for your kids, just like you're going to make them eat a healthy diet and get enough sleep. I'm going to try and make them learn how to practice music. Even if they're not very good, the practice itself is, is of benefit. Absolutely. What do you have for us next, Andrew? I, I do. I actually have another news article. A twofer. A twofer. And this one, you know, we go from medical instruction in childhood to digital rectal screening exams for prostate cancer. Which are entirely unrelated. Unrelated. This is just an average day in family medicine. <laughs> yes, that's true. And so, so it's related in your life, not that's, mine. That's right. I don't know what bone connects these. <laughs> but uh, this, this is an article called Put That Finger Down. The end of screening, oh, you're the screening rectal exam. No, these, these people had a, a good sense of humor. And this is from April of 2018 in the Annals of Family Medicine. And basically, you know, the, this is a pretty simple article. They did a review and meta-analysis of all the studies having to do with the rectal exam for prostate cancer. So most men this will resonate with yes, or, or invoke yes. uh, <laughs> memories of one kind where Basically, you're checking the prostate manually to see if there's any nodules, growth, abnormalities that would make it suspicious for prostate cancer. This has been done for a long time because it's really the one of the 
only ways on physical exam to assess the prostate in any way. However, they've looked at all of the studies regarding this and they found that there's really no good evidence that this type of screening with the rectal exam actually changes morbidity or mortality down the road. Wow, so what should be done if you're concerned about possible prostate problems? That's hard to say. Well, and I (laughs) I think the distinction is, too, that this is speaking in in strict terms of screening. You take someone with no problems and you check just to make sure. Very good. Because out of the people who have an abnormal one, not even half of them will have prostate cancer. Most of the people with an abnormal exam will not have prostate cancer. So this is still different than people who come in with a problem that sounds like prostate. Those, that group of people are much more likely to have a problem, and so an exam is still reasonable there. Ah, very good. So this is, in general, I'm here for my wellness. I know about the exam. Now I, I'd like to talk to people about PSA, yes. which is the prostate screening antigen. Um, and basically, this is a blood test that can look at the antigen levels that are released from the prostate. We know what levels are normal. And even more than what a discrete level is, we look for trends, whether it's going up, going down, or staying the same. And this in itself is controversial. We've, we've uh, addressed that a little bit in another uh, health tip. But I think if someone is interested in the screening for prostate cancer, the best way to do it is with a blood test because even, you know, 10 years ago when it was still recommended that we do the digital exam, if the exam is abnormal, you need to get the blood test. If it was normal, we can't be sure, so we should get the blood test regardless. And so now the question is, is the blood test worth it or not? But if, if you're interested in screening, which I, I would recommend, I think the blood test is the best way to do it. Thank you for being practical. You just put a smile on the face of a lot of men who are going to have a better next wellness exam. You be, oh, sorry. If you just turned in, you're listening to Dr. Doctor on Redeemer Radio, and we are now moving from news of the day to Andrew's patented preventive health care tip of the day. Well, and I wanted to tell you, Tom, you wouldn't believe the number of people that come in for their wellness, and they are shocked that we don't have to do the rectal exam. <laughs> they just really built themselves all up for it. So here's, here's letting the good news out to everybody. <laughs> Amen. T- today's health tip from the USPSTF, United States Preventative Screening Task Force, has to do with folic acid supplementation. A lot of people have heard of folic acid. This recommendation is from January of 2017. And the recommendation is that all women, not only who are pregnant, but who are planning or capable of pregnancy, take a daily supplement containing 0.4 to 0.8 milligrams of folic acid. Just like our producer across the window is doing right now. You know, <laughs> it's, it's a good habit, and I, I was impressed to see that they recommend all of this for, for women of childbearing age, regardless of pregnancy or not. That's I, new, isn't it? it? It is of 2017. The thought previously was you become pregnant, you start taking prenatals. Now they've identified that so many pregnancies are unanticipated for one reason or another, that it's wise, if you're capable of becoming pregnant, it's good to take. Folic acid, you know, I've got my my classic top three things that you need to know here. It reduces neural tube defects by 70%. Wow. Anything 70% is great. (laughs) That's a passing grade. And especially if you can get rid of 70% of something that's bad, that's a no-brainer. And for those in the audience who may not know what a neural tube defect is... Neural tube defect (laughs) is a group of conditions with the most common being spina bifida, where it's basically a defect in the formulation of the spinal cord and spina bifida is one that many people may have heard of before. Basically, the spine does not form correctly while the infant is growing in the wombs in the very earliest stages of development. So some of these people will never walk because the part of the spinal cord that controls the muscles to your legs don't work. Precisely, and, and many of them need many, many different very intricate surgeries and really do lead a life of of disability. Right, because they may not also be able to control their urine or their feces. Precisely. And if if that's something that we could prevent 70% of that, man, I want to get behind that. You know, and this, these are frequently in standard prenatals. They're safe. If you take too much folic acid, it's water-soluble, so you can't really overdose on it. It'll go out with the water-soluble vitamins in your urine. And so it's a very safe thing to do to prevent a major problem. I wanted to address some high-risk groups that might need higher doses than recommended. One is if you have a first-degree relative with a neural tube defect. 
Another group is if you're on a medicine called carbamazepine or valproic acid. This is a seizure medication some people also take for psychological conditions like depression. If you're on a chronic antibiotic like Bactrim, that is a medication that can affect this and you need more folic acid around. And then people who have diabetes even before becoming pregnant, that's another group as well as folks with MTHFR mutations, which we've discussed previously. So my last real tip of the day is make sure you're, you're taking this if you are at, at any chance of becoming pregnant. It's safe to do and you could really avoid some major problems if you do that. Wow. Folic acid for women of childbearing potential, an excellent tip. Before we go to the break, I'll pose our medical trivia question of the day. This one concerns, you know, the the medical problems in the U.S. of access to physicians. It says that physician jobs are expected to grow 15% in the decade from 2016 to 2026, but some specialties are going to grow faster than others. Now, one specialty is expected to grow 164%. That means if we need 100 of them now, we'll need 264 of them in 10 years. Which specialty is expected to grow the most by 2026? Is it, it's a choice of five, is it family practice, Andrew's specialty? Is it obstetrics and gynecology, Dr. Chris Stroud's specialty? Is it geriatrics? Is it hematology, oncology, and dealing with cancers? Or is it urology? Stay tuned for the end of the show when we will reveal the results of this trend. This is Dr. Doctor on Redeemer Radio, back after the break. Welcome back to Dr. Doctor. We're here today with Dr. Saj Jaswawi. He is a gastroenterologist, grew up, went to medical school in Iraq, then did his uh, internship, residency, and gastroenterology fellowship at St. Vincent Catholic Medical Center in Manhattan, New York, and an advanced GI fellowship at University of Texas Southwestern in Dallas. He's also the president of the Catholic Medical Association Guild in Portland, Oregon. Saad, welcome to Dr. Doctor. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Well, this topic is of high interest to Catholics and non-Catholics alike. It's said that 100 million Americans consume gluten-free products annually. Saad, how common do people purposely avoid eating gluten in their diets, and why are they doing it so much at unprecedented rates? The data on that is still variable, but what we have, I mean, looking at the current data, it tells us about 4% of the population try to avoid a gluten-free diet, uh, and the there is a larger population among athletes. 50% of athletes uh, avoid uh, some of that is related to the assumption that helps them to more uh, protein and hydrate and not to, again, lose lose the to function uh, physically, basically. And uh, the other group is the uh, celiac disease, which compromises 1% of the population, uh, and that is the main group that we specialize in to treat in uh, gastroenterology. And, and what's the underlying problem in celiac disease? Well, celiac disease is uh, an it's a kind of a complex disease, and the first description came from uh, from the Netherlands in, in the 1940s. What it is, it's basically uh, sensitivity, an autoimmune disease in patients who are genetically predisposed to develop reaction to uh, components of uh, protein that we eat, of grains we eat, and uh, this is called gluten. And it's uh, present in uh, wheat, in rye, in um, barley, and those patients, when they eat it, they feel sick. And uh, feeling sick means, uh, in the in the old literature, this is when I was studying in med school, the literature usually they present with what we call malabsorption, where they could develop diarrhea, profuse diarrhea, weight loss, and edema, and uh, they look sick at the time. It gives them uh, avoiding the uh, gluten in the diet and any of the sources, they start to feel better and actually they become normal. And then further studies came down uh, along the line and showed that there are, you know, biological 
endoscopic, what we call lining of the stomach and of the small bowel changes with the gluten exposure. So by avoiding it, they become normal again. Now, to clarify for our audience, even though barley, rye, and wheat are grains or carbohydrates, gluten is actually a protein within these carbohydrate sources, correct? Yes, it's a, it's a protein that is carried, uh, the, it's a protein carrier, basically, yes. And it's a protein that is partially digested when eaten. Other proteins will be digested fully by the pancreatic secretion. Gastric secretion plays less a role, but gastric, uh, pancreatic secretion, and uh, when it's absorbed, uh, this protein is a larger molecule, and it has a different characteristic than others. When than, I was than the other simple proteins. When I was in my dermatology training, there's a, a dermatology disease called dermatitis herpetiformis, which is also due to gluten. And the one thing I remember learning about gluten-free diets is that they are almost impossible to follow. So here we are 25 years after that, people willingly doing this incredibly difficult diet without a life-changing reason to do it. Have you seen so, that change just in your medical career too? So... Uh, so uh, you're now referring to the uh, non-celiac gluten intolerance. So the the yes. and then the, we're talking about the diet. The diet is is uh, very restrictive. And if a person has celiac disease, which is uh, proven by biopsy and immunological testing or blood testing, I guess the the, the it has to have strict avoidance of anything that has gluten in it. And again, these are the three components. But uh, besides the components uh, that we mentioned, where it's wheat, uh, rye, and uh, barley, it could also be present in a lot of drug fillers. So, and that's what actually we, we notice in our patients. So patients with celiac disease, and they continue to have symptoms, when we you know dig deeper to try to figure out what's the reason they continue to have symptoms, the markers are elevated, the biopsies continue to show us activity. Uh, we find that usually it's in other sources, such as, again, the drug fillers and their capsules. Wow. We find it in, in sauces they use for their food and diet, and uh, sometimes in processed meat and salamis and other age, other things. So it's, it requires strict and complete avoidance to go back to the normal lining and symptom-free. That said, there is the other group of, of uh, patients where we start to identify, and increasingly over the last, uh, I could say, I, 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 probably 20, 25 years, actually started in, I, in, in uh, looking at the literature, it started in the late 1970s, 1978, with an initial article describing patients with symptoms similar to celiac disease, but they lack the immunological and they lack the bio the endoscopic or mucosal uh, markers, and those patients uh, we still have a difficulty in, in in labeling them what we call them because they're not a celiac disease. So at the time being, we call them non-celiac gluten sensitive uh, sensitivity, which is kind of a tough disease to to be <laughs> named at this point. But it's the it's the more of an official diagnosis for now. So they have symptoms without having any of the changes inside their intestinal tract that celiac disease patients would have and well, it's, yeah and it's not an allergy it's uh so the the term allergy which we use in lay term is a little bit and again you're uh, as a dermatologist i'm sure you get to deal with that it's a it's a it's a very broad and there are people who are really allergic to gluten and these patients, actually, when they get exposed to gluten, they do not present uh, in, you know, uh, the way celiac disease presents. So right. patients who are allergic to, a real allergy to wheat, how we call it, let's say, they develop symptoms in minutes and hours, basically. They just get flare, edema, and swelling, and may not have a lot of digestive symptoms, which is what I do as a specialty. They are more of a, of a breathing difficulty, rash, and a lot of other symptoms. So that's, that is not what we're talking about as a celiac disease. And then, then we have the, the celiac disease, which you know, takes longer time to develop and longer time to heal, even with the avoidance after that of the um, gluten in, in diet. And that is a kind of an autoimmune disease. And then we're dealing with this new entity. We're, we're getting to recognize it more. And actually, it, in a, almost four times 
the amount of celiac disease. Again, we said celiac disease about 1%. About 4% uh, are gluten sensitive. And actually, it could be even higher among uh, among different demographics. And that, well, we what we term uh, non-celiac gluten sensitivity, it does have uh, some immune components. We still don't know it. So many data out there, and we're trying to sort it out. The reason for that problem is we lack the strong and easy biological markers that we can identify, and we lack the um, uh, the biopsy proof of to confirm it. So it becomes a lot of it is a symptoms that improves an avoidance of most likely gluten-like products. So, and that's what we describe as non-celiac gluten sensitivity, which is increasing and outnumbering celiac disease at the time being. Well, one of the things that I see in a lot of my patients who have kind of identified in themselves discomfort or sensitivities with gluten is they're seeking a diagnostic certainty. And, and one of the things that they appeal to is the IgA testing that's done, at least in our area, commonly by uh, nutritionists, sometimes chiropractors, which is different than the IgE sensitivities that, that you've identified and mentioned with anaphylactic-type responses. H- how should we ask patients to consider that, especially for these gluten-sensitive folks that are really seeking a diagnosis? So... Again, with the gluten sensitive, and which we are at this point are going to lump them as both could be celiac and non celiac. The best approach is to do a blood testing for what we call, again, a TTG, which is tissue transglutaminase. Mm-hmm. And that is a very good sensitive test. It does have a, a, a small miss rate and, or, and sometimes overdiagnose uh, some cases. So, And it does also actually reflect the disease activity. So if somebody has it elevated and they come down after avoiding gluten, if they get exposed to gluten, that number goes up. Or actually, if they have symptoms or for other reasons, we check the uh, tissue transglutaminase, the TTG, it will be elevated in these patients, which tells me that patient inadvertently or uh, you know intentionally get exposed to gluten and could be the reason why they are not feeling well at that time. So that's one blood test that is very helpful and kind of we, we call it a good screening test for patients who are at risk or patients who have symptom. And then after that, if the disease, again, at this time now we call a celiac disease suspected, then an endoscopy with a biopsy of the uh, small bowel to look for the uh, mucosal changes that has been identified with patients with celiac disease. Those mucosal changes will need to be happening while the patient's still on gluten, which is a challenge. A lot of these patients have, you know, suffer when they take, uh, eat uh, wheat or barley or anything that's rich in gluten. So they need to be on it for a few weeks. Generally, I recommend four weeks. Sometimes they cannot keep more than two weeks on on that. And you take the biopsy while they are on it, the results usually confirm the diagnosis. And that's when we confirm the diagnosis. What about those patients who have a negative blood test but have symptoms? What do you do with them, the ones who don't have celiac disease? And then that's the category that we describe. Then again, assuming that they are on gluten, taking gluten for the last two to four weeks. Because the problem is if you are gluten sensitive and or you are, you are celiac disease actually and you are of successful in avoiding right. gluten, your TTG will come down to normal, which means we will miss it on, on blood tests. There are a couple of other tricks to check for the HLA markers to rule out but cannot rule we cannot diagnose them that way. But at least we can rule out that and the and the other method. The um then the possibility of celiac disease in somebody who is eating gluten will be less likely. Okay. There are a few, again, there are a few exceptions, and it becomes too detailed on that. But at that time, we start to think that this is more likely to be non-celiac gluten sensitivity. And we, uh, we have, I mean, in our clinic, a large you know, you know, number of patients who deal with that. And it is actually, when I talk to some of my colleagues, 
elsewhere where, who I trained with or when I meet them in other meetings and we talk like, what are you dealing with that? I say, absolutely. So the numbers are increasing. And, and Saad, let's pick up in the second half or over time with this section <laughs> okay. uh, with how we deal with helping those patients. This is Dr. Doctor. We'll be back after the break. This is Dr. Doctor returning now from the studios of Redeemer Radio, and we're here today discussing gluten sensitivities with Dr. Saad from Portland, Oregon. Saad, one of the things I think we should back up and kind of discuss for our patients is what, what are some of the symptoms that gluten-sensitive patients or celiac patients would present with? What should they be looking for? So when I was in training, the most symptoms we were worried about is diarrhea and malabsorption, where you lose a lot of your weight, uh, again, because you cannot absorb it and because of the uh, injury to the small bowel that comes from gluten. What is happening uh, as our field expanded and our knowledge of the of, uh, and we're detecting them even at uh, different stages of life, uh, we're finding that these patients have other ways of presentation. Uh, as uh, alluded uh, uh, at some point, uh, a form of dermatitis herpetiforma where it's a skin rash that can develop. Uh, other patients can present with uh, infertility, and I've had a number of patients with infertility. They come uh, uh, with uh, symptoms outside the digestive symptoms where they come in and uh, somebody had done a blood test and we realize they are at risk and we start to test them further into that. There are uh, patients who present with the more of an osteoporosis because of malabsorption of um, of of, uh, of uh, vitamin D, uh, which is needed, and that uh, is dependent on uh, fat. So you lose that, you end up having a risk of uh, a break of bone, uh, spontaneous fracture. I guess the uh, there is. We used to say they are underweight. Now we only find out that only 15% of these patients are underweight, and only 50, and even 15% of those patients are overweight. So most of these patients are, you know, a normal weight or within the average uh, population of the U.S. So are, we do are not these have both celiac and the gluten-sensitive patients? Okay, uh, good question. The this is more of the the studies easier done on celiac patients because you have markers to chase. And this is where the, the, the symptoms... But what are patients, the symptoms of the gluten-sensitive who don't have celiac disease? Okay. In, in those patients, I, they have uh, a lot of um, bloating, uh, diarrhea, feeling weak and fatigue, uh, multiple symptoms that is not un- unique to, a di- to the digestive symptom uh, system. Sorry, And uh, these patients, you know, eventually start to eliminate gluten from diet, which uh, has become a little bit easier to do nowadays with the label gluten-free uh, product or gluten-free diet. And this allows them then, once they avoid it, they feel improved uh, shortly afterward. And with that, they, they are, they are uh, basically what we call them non-celiac gluten-sensitive. And I've read that some of these patients even have symptoms outside the gastrointestinal tract, like even neurologic or, or in their oh. muscles? Oh, absolutely. Actually, um, this is kind of, they did a reverse way uh, where they found out some patients uh, who um, have uh, neuropathy, patients with uh, autism and uh, i trying to remember the other one. So they've had uh, symptoms that get better and when they looked at the on avoiding gluten, and when they did uh, the more of a basic research uh, level um, to test for therefore markers of uh, we call them intercellular processing, they found out some of them have uh, what what coincides with the the, the group of patients with non-celiac gluten sensitivity. So that group again. Um, patients with uh, peripheral neuropathy, autism, ataxia, and the other one was schizophrenia. Some of them do have improvement in the symptoms by avoiding gluten. The, uh, so they are, they, they are lumped all together in that group. Do, do we have enough data to, to guide us through it? Not much at this point, but again, the science is developing, and it's really picked up a lot over the last seven to eight years. 
how do you treat the patient that you believe has gluten sensitivity but does not have celiac disease? So the, the that is uh, and, and that is an increasing population of our patients nowadays. And what we do, the if first we need to prove they don't have celiac disease, and that is an important thing. If they cannot go back on gluten because they feel the symptoms are so uh, drastic, there are some immunological markers we can test for, and uh, we can check for that to rule out the. Uh, the disease, if they do not have, um, we call them these immunological markers, they will, even if they are avoiding gluten, they are unlikely to have celiac disease. They could have celiac sensitivity, they, they could have gluten sensitivity, which is, again, the larger percentage of our patients now. And how do we approach them? Once we ruled out or ruled in the disease, then the management would be if to rule out once if they have a celiac disease, you, they should avoid completely all their uh, gluten in diet. If, uh, if they have non-celiac gluten sensitive, then the management would be recommendation. My recommendation to my own patient: if it works for you, stay with it. If that, if you can narrow it down to one or two items, such as only wheat, such as cereals narrow it down. The burden of having complete gluten-free diet is, is heavy. I mean, in terms of social interaction, going out to eat, uh, uh, in terms of uh, obviously receiving the host, uh, in terms of the um, uh, making, sh- making food for the family, uh, in terms of health consequences, uh, a smaller increased risk of some other diseases down the line. These are all important. So if you have a celiac disease, we treat them a little bit more strictly. If they are non-celiac disease, it's a, it's a more of an option to lower the uh, to avoid it, but it does not have to be 100% avoidance. Is it true that there are other proteins in grains like the wheat, barley, and rye that may cause problems similar to gluten? This is an ongoing research, and, and uh, every, now, every now and then we have another new paper comes in supporting of those. The, again, the science has, has, has evolved tremendously over the past eight, nine years. The, there are some of those. The, the specifics of it are not completely yet detailed because the consistency of the data is not there. So I would say we will learn more in the next two to three years. I trained, and again, not a little over 10 years, over 15 years ago, and the science have tremendously changed over the last uh, five years. And I'm looking forward to the newer changes that's going to come and make us a little more able to treat those patients who are suffering with non-celiac gluten sensitivity. You mentioned that there are some health risks to a gluten-free diet. What do those include? Early, early, I'm sorry, say the question again. I believe you said that there are some health risks associated with eating a gluten-free diet. It puts you at higher risk for other diseases or medical problems. It, it, there are some you know, nutritional deficiencies that you could, you could be at risk for. Most of them can be compensated. I think the more uh, uh, problematic uh, you know, that, that becomes is the fact that you will uh, have to sustain a financial burden that comes from the cost of, of eating a uh, low, low uh, gluten diet. Because I was uh, under the or, impression it could increase your risk for cardiovascular disease, but that's not true? It's, so the, the, data, the data went initially uh, in the 70s when, it, when more data was available on gluten-free diet. The initial data was showing increased risk of cancer and increased risk, uh, which specifically lymphoma and adenocarcinoma of the uh, small bowel, and also increased risk of uh, cardiovascular disease. That said, more recent data, when they like, try to factor in all the other eight other things that contributed, they feel this is less of a risk uh, than thought. And again, earlier data said 10 times increased risk, and now they say it's kind of a minor increased risk Very uh, in the... So I'm not saying that you should encourage people to eat it, to eat gluten-free, but it's not does not increase your risk of uh, major risk of uh, cardiac events. So I guess, kind of in summary, would it be safe to say if if someone's having symptoms of gluten sensitivity, it'd be wise to get tested with blood work, 
but it's also safe to avoid it as a treatment in and of itself if the symptoms are minor. Yes. So the reason to be tested because the health consequences of having celiac disease is much bigger. The other one has less health consequences, the quality of life affected, but not the health consequence and how to monitor it. Some of those are, you know, uh, needs to be monitored and proven and proven healing of the mucosa. So the number one thing first to do is to rule out celiac disease. And then if having uh, exposure to gluten or specifically to wheat or a specific type of cereals affects your digestive symptoms or others, other such as neurologically, then avoiding them would help. Are there any future trends on the horizon for treatment or diagnosis of these diseases that our listeners should know about? Um, in terms of the uh, diagnosis, we're trying to find ways to diagnose it without, with, with less invasive methods or with methods while they are still avoiding the gluten. So there are some work on the progress in, in, in that. More promising, actually, uh, some sort of... Um, the, the hardest thing for somebody with gluten d- disease is to trust that this food eating, he's, he or she they're eating, is gluten-free. And because, again, minute exposure does cause symptoms in these patients, cause damage to the mucosa and symptoms down the line. And the, there are some uh, newer techniques that are coming up uh, down the pipeline to help di- uh, detect uh, elements of uh, gluten in diet when, or in meals that you are eating. That's one. Other methods that uh, they are trying to decrease immune response. Again, it's an autoimmune disease. Decrease, decrease the immune or alter the immune response to exposure to gluten. Some uh, reported lit- uh, cases not fully yet uh, uh, replicated to increase exposure, gradual increase exposure to small amounts of gluten can eventually make you desensitized if that can be applied. But again, few Very cases good. only been reported. We but have a little less than a minute left, Saad. What final words would you like to leave with our listeners? If you have, I, I think the one thing that I just I kind of glimpsed, it went through fast, which is if you have suspicion, you have gluten sensitivity, I think the most important thing is to be tested rather than assuming you have it, number one. Number two, family member with of patients or family members of individuals with celiac disease preferably should be tested to detect them early. Many patients are asymptomatic. They are at risk of the side effect of avoiding gluten, of, of gluten exposure, regardless of being symptomatic, uh, asymptomatic. And that could be a health risk down the line in terms of anemia down the line and infertility. And sometimes, despite not being too high, but the high risk, higher risk of uh, cardiac or uh, cardiac risk or uh, lymphoma risk. Saad, thank you so much for being with us today. It's a fascinating subject, and we appreciate you being our guest. Happy to help anytime. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thirteen minutes on dot. Saad, that was great. Right now, do we know roughly when this episode will air, Andrea? Welcome back to our final segment of this episode of Dr. Doctor with the answer to the trivia question, which was, physician jobs are expected to grow 15% by 2026, but some specialties are expected to grow faster than others. Which one of these five is expected to grow the most, 164%, which means if there's 100 physicians in that now, we'll need 264 of them in 2026. Is it family practice, obstetrics and gynecology, geriatrics, hematology, oncology, or urology? Andrew, you can see the answer. Is it surprising to you? It's not. If And I think this will uh, maybe be thought of by several of our listeners given the demographic shifts in our country. Yeah, demographics is destiny because more people are living longer. That specialty is geriatrics, 164%. The specialty that's going to grow the second most, they say, is urology, and that's 49%. So that less than one-third the growth of the highest growing specialty. Oncology is just a little bit behind that at 45%. As we live longer, more people are having cancer. So if you want to go into geriatrics, 
name your place, name your practice. Well, and you know, it's it's one of those things too. They said in the history of the world, this is the first time that there's more people who are older than younger. That's never happened before. So yes, there are more people over 65 than under the age of five. It'll be very interesting to see what the future holds. Yes, so not so good for pediatricians, much better for geriatricians, at least from a profession viewpoint. Definitely not good for uh, the planet Earth and the human civilization. But from that big topic, we're going to move into our Lineker for the Laity uh, segment, the Lineker Quarterly being the Medical Moral Journal of the Catholic Medical Association. And we have here with us today Nancy Valco. She's a registered nurse since 1969 and is one of the spokespeople for the National Association of Pro-Life Nurses and currently works as a legal nurse consultant, although she has a plethora of experience in um, hospital care, hospice care, home health, oncology nursing, and dialysis nursing. Uh, Nancy, welcome to Dr. Doctor. Thank you for having me. You're welcome. She recently published an article in the Lineker Quarterly called uh, it's actually a book review of a book called Nurses and Midwives in Nazi Germany, the Euthanasia Programs. Now, when I see an article title like that, I think, oh, gosh, here we go, the Nazi era again. So, so Nancy, why should our listeners care about what the Nazi nurses did? Isn't it just better that, that history be left forgotten? Actually not, and the reason the book was written was very interesting because that part of history is no longer taught anymore in nursing schools and probably medical schools, too. We have no idea. When you go on the American Nurses Association website, you can find nothing. Even when I went to the Holocaust um, website, very little. And it was hugely important, and we're facing some of the same problems today with the changes in ethics that happened back then, and it's important to know that history so that we don't repeat it again, and we are repeating it again. Well, what role did the nurses play in the Nazi euthanasia movement? Well, it's interesting because when Hitler came in, things changed very much, and the Reich took over nursing and medicine, and the whole focus uh, changed from uh, the Hippocratic Oath before where it was a sacred covenant between the patient and the doctor, to um, the health and the, of the community, which we see today in some of the new Hippocratic oaths that are sometimes taken. And the whole uh, reason for it happening was eugenics. That became very big, and a lot of people don't remember that Margaret Sanger was actually a big eugenicist, and she was the founder of Planned Parenthood. And could you define and, for our listeners what you mean by eugenics? really interesting because it's talking about um, more reproduction for the healthy or the ones that are considered beneficial and less of the people who are not through psychiatric or in Nazi Germany, Jewish, um, the mental disorders, physical disorders. And what they did is they conscripted the uh, medical and the nursing profession into um, increasing um, the population and purifying the population, which was really interesting. And they didn't want to waste scarce healthcare resources on people who were not considered worth living. Their lives were terrible. And it was very big in the United States, actually before it got to Nazi Germany. And, uh, but it was a big deal, particularly in Nazi Germany, because they had lost so many people in World War One, particularly the soldiers. They had a falling birth rate. Um, they were worried about a bunch of different things. And they wanted to kind of purify it. And we actually, in the United States, they actually had these euthanasia conferences. And one of them was actually what nurses are supposed to do as far as eugenics go. It kind of fell out of favor after World War Two. But that was the basis for everything, and a book called Destruction of a Life Not Worth Living was very influential on Adolf Hitler. But they felt they couldn't do anything too much because um, until a war was starting, which was, of course was World War II, because the population in the churches would not allow it. They felt that that was going to be a big problem. So they waited, and the first documented killing 
was interesting in 1939 because it, uh, a young father asked Hitler to allow euthanasia of his son, who was born blind, missing a leg and part of an arm, and seemed to be an idiot, and he allowed it. In 1939, the German Ministry of Justice proposed two clauses. One, and this sounds so familiar today, whoever is suffering from an incurable or terminal illness, which is a major burden to himself or others, can request mercy killing by a doctor, provided it is an express wish and has the approval of a specially empowered doctor. And the second one was the life of a person who, because of incurable mental illness, requires permanent institutionalization, is not able to sustain an independent existence, may be prematurely terminated by medical measures in a painless and covert manner. Okay, so what did the nurses actually have to do, and how were they convinced to do it? They were very much in it. The eugenics thing was very big, and nursing education changed from traditional religious mother houses to much more independence. And um, the Nazi regime actually came out and said, the nurse is the one who should carry out the will of the state and the health education of the people. So they were very involved. The midwives were particularly kind of scary because it was kind of a low-level job. And uh, German births usually took place in homes. Um, but they also were very involved with their clients and the administration of education. And beginning in 1933, there was an evaluation, and a law mandated a midwife for every birth and miscarriage and ensured that every midwife receive a minimum income. And they wound up having kind of monopoly, and then they were required to report uh, any racially inferior or hereditary disease or small child under three who seemed to have a problem to the Reich. That's pretty scary. And they also could initiate proceedings for forced sterilization. That was how they started. And uh, that would go to a place where many of these children were killed just by this report. They were ordered killed. So this has nothing to do with the Holocaust. This is really German people treating other German people this way. They did. Of course, the Jews were considered racially inferior, so they were put in with everything else. Oh, sure. And the first big Nazi war uh, trial was Hadamar, which was a psychiatric institution. And that was really interesting. When the midwives, by the way, when they were, um, they found out these kids were, uh, they would tell the parents, we're going to put your child in a special place where they'll get special care. And then they were killed, and the parents were told they died of natural causes. And they were killing the psychiatric patients, too. And that was what the Hadamar trial was, and the whole world was riveted by it. And it was before the better-known Nuremberg trial, and it was the first U.S. war crimes trial covered extensively by major media, but not ironically by the American Journal of Nurses, even though nurses were charged. So, Nancy, we have less than three minutes left. We'd like to cover how you think this parallels what's going on today in our medical um, society and with nurses in the United States. Well, it's interesting because we've had a real sea change in medical ethics. And one thing, instead of um, the now discredited eugenics movement, we have the autonomy movement where people can choose or have it chosen for themselves as I found out personally when I chose life for my daughter with Down syndrome, but she was made a do not resuscitate behind my back because I was supposedly too emotionally involved with this retarded baby. Uh, We see the changes in that. We think we're so much better. But what we're seeing, too, is a lack of conscience rights, along with the changes in ethics. We now have autonomy and non-malfeasance. Uh, we're seeing medical societies take positions of neutrality on assisted suicide. Um, the Hippocratic Oath is changing, as I mentioned before. And we've really got a, an entirely different thing, and we now have lives considered not worth living. And with assisted suicide, we've seen Canada and other countries, and here too, it keeps expanding, where people who are even considered tired of life have the right to have their lives terminated. And, of course, in the United States, and this was shocking to me in the 80s, when all of a sudden people in a so-called vegetative state 
were denied tube feedings or even spoon feedings. We're now seeing that happen with people with Alzheimer's, uh, something called VSED, voluntary starvation, by, you know, by stopping of eating and drinking. And that has been endorsed and is considered legal throughout the United States, even without assisted suicide. So we are getting into the same kind of mentality uh, with the falling birth rate. How can we take care of all these older people? We hear all the time, um, all this money is being spent at the last six months of life. And uh, my latest blog was on that rational suicide in the elderly is actually being done and being promoted. And we are no longer um, treating people who are suicidal. the same way if they're terminally ill or they're elderly, things like that. Nancy, so we have about 30 seconds danger. left. What would you like to leave with our listeners? What's your most important point? Well, I think the important point is the uh, nurses who wrote the book have said it's important that this kind of history be taught. It's actually teaching ethics by the idea of Nazi Germany where certain lives were not uh, considered living and they had two experimental programs in Australia and Israel that had great results when they had the nurses explore their own values because so many times the nurses who did these things in Nazi Germany said well they didn't know it was wrong and they felt like they had to even there were very few nurses who were enthusiastic thank you Nancy the book is called nurses and midwives in Nazi Germany the euthanasia programs thank you for listening to another episode of Dr. Doctor we are the official radio program of the Catholic Medical Association brought to you from the studios of Redeemer Radio for more information on the CMA find us on our website cathmed.org that's c-a-t-h-m-e-d dot o-r-g Thanks for listening to Dr. Doctor. This is Dr. Tom McGovern and Dr. Andrew Mullally signing off until next time. Remember, your medical decisions may have profound consequences, so please choose wisely. Choose Catholic.